0: Could open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter seven. We'll pick up where we left off a few weeks ago, and I am excited to be back into this this portion for sure. Now, Romans seven, some of you, no doubt, are coming to this passage with some preconceived notions. You've read this through and it's been a, an area, a, a passage where a lot of people have debated various thoughts and, and what's going on here. And uh, and others of you have come, you're coming with a clean slate. You've never really given it all that much thought, but uh, if you've tangled with it at all, you know it's got some parts to it that are a little tough to, to wade through. And uh, what we're going to try and do today, I hope, because what happens is often the, the trees get lost because of the forest or the forest for the trees. I'm never sure which one that is. But uh, as if, we, if we get bogged down in the controversies of the passage, we can really miss the message of the passage. And that I don't want to happen. I want us to try and get an overview of this whole section this morning, if I can. I don't know that that's possible. Uh, as you know, especially when I've been away on vacation, I usually can't tell you my name in 45 minutes, let alone finish this up. But I'm going to do my best to kind of give us a, a quick gloss over the, the the central themes of the passage, and then maybe we can go back in a week or two and unpack some more of the of the things that are here. But it is such an exciting portion. If you're a believer this morning, you want to know the message of Romans chapter 7. You want to be able to get it down, and it will really help you understand a lot of what you experience in your Christian life, so you're not going to think you're a freak or strange or the most sinful person in the pew. Um, we're we're together on that, and Paul really helps us understand some of that struggle so that we we don't walk around with our heads down all the time. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to pay attention because it will give you some real insight as to why we rejoice in our salvation so much. The message is just extraordinary and it's also going to open up some things that you experience and aren't sure exactly why. To give you a a quick uh, rejoinder, as, as I said, chapter 6 was just so much fun. I wished we had been able to spend more time there. It was great, but we needed to move on. In chapter 6, we learned that sin is not dead, but that the believer has died to sin in Christ. Now, the fact that sin isn't dead awakens us to the reality that we still wrestle with it. It's still there. It still calls. It still tempts. It still Pulls. It still attempts to rule us. So we're awakened to the idea we're going to have that battle throughout our lives because it isn't sin that dies itself. And sometimes Christians have really struggled and been frustrated with making progress in their growth in Christ because they thought, well, the more righteous I become, the more like Christ I become, the less sin will tempt me. That's not true. <laughs> it's not going to be gone what changes is that because you're in Christ you don't have to yield to it the way you used to so it's still going to be coming after you tooth and nail but what changes is that you now have an ability to respond to it that you didn't before you were saved that's what changes so the struggle's not going to go away don't don't be afraid of that don't be ashamed of that I know some Christians are ashamed to even admit that they're still being tempted with sins that maybe they struggled with 30 years ago. Well, of course you are. Sin didn't die. It doesn't go away. But you've, you've got a new position because of where you are in Christ that enables you to resist it where you couldn't before. Chapter 7 follows exactly the same kind of, of structure in that it has this one overview thought the believer, um, uh, in, in chapter 7, the law isn't dead either. It's the Christian who is dead to the law. So the law is still going to have some effect on us. It's still going to be around us. It's still going to be operating. We're going to interact with it. But the question is, well, what does it mean to be dead to it? So the law doesn't go away. Some of us want the law to just disappear. It'd be much easier, wouldn't it? If I just didn't have to worry about all that law stuff, if it was all just gone, if it wasn't even in the scripture, I'd feel a lot better about my Christian life. I wouldn't have to wrestle with those thoughts at all. But being a Christian, you know, Jesus, as he was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about the fact that the path is a hard path. We've got to wrestle through some of these thorny things. We're going to have to think through them and and concentrate on them and really mine out what Scripture says so that we can get a grip on it. It's not just a a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of thing being a Christian and there 's a, a warfare to be engaged in there 's some struggle, and there 's some hard thought that has to be given to things. Christians are thinking people. Christianity is not a, a religion for unthinking people you 're going to have to to really fight through some stuff. But chapter seven says okay let 's recognize that the the believer that the law is still there, but the believer has a new position concerning it, and so he 's dead to it, but it isn 't gone. Now, that's going to be the main theme of everything he unpacks in this chapter, that simple concept. The law is not dead. And when I say it isn't dead, what I mean by that is it still exposes and judges sin in us. But it has no power to condemn us anymore. Remember, we looked at this antithesis all the way through. To be under law is to be under a system that says sin and you will die. To be under grace is to be under a system that says believe and you will live. Now, over here, believing doesn't somehow end sinning. You and I still sin. Why don't we die? Why aren't we condemned for it? Especially as Christians who are supposed to live holy and upright because we're in Christ. And that's what he's going to unfold in this entire passage. The bad news that you're going to find out in this passage is that your sinfulness is a lot worse than you thought it was. Even as a believer, you're a whole lot worse than you thought you were. The truth is, you never do anything perfectly right. Neither do I. As sinners, everything we do in this life, we will always do with mixed motives. With sin, tainting it. The question is, why is that acceptable before God? Because we're in Christ. And before we were in Christ, because that sin was there, everything we did was worthy of condemnation. But we've been shifted to this new place. That's what he wants to work through. Now, there's going to be... So while we're a lot worse off than we thought we were, grace is also a lot more glorious than we thought it was. We're going to find that out, too. That's the the real joy of this passage. The latter half of the chapter is the place where all the controversy is. And I want to say just one thing about it before we plunge in. The the question is, especially from verses 7 on, is Paul talking about believers or unbelievers? Is he talking about his experience while he was a Jew trying to serve? Or is he talking about being a Christian now? How am I supposed to understand that passage? And I will give you a categorical answer to that. Is it the unbeliever or the believer? Yes. It's men in Adam. We're going to see that, that he picks up a theme that he began in chapter 5 and draws it over. And if you miss this tension, then the passage will become unwieldy. And you'll be flip-flopping back and forth between interpretations. Now, just so that you know, while what I'm about to teach you is not the common interpretation of this passage, neither is it novel. In the early church... One of the most common interpretations was that he was talking about, for instance, in this one verse, and we'll come back. I just want to prep some things for you, such as this one verse, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. How can a person be alive without the law? How, how could I have been alive to God and yet there'd be no law. And then the law came and I died if we're all born in sin. Seems to contradict other parts of Scripture, doesn't it? And the early interpreters said, well, it's very simple. I was alive in Adam. We all were. And then the commandment came. And then we disobeyed the commandment. Sin came alive. And we all died. And Paul uses this collective eye to talk about all of us, all of humanity. And once you get a little bit of the taste of that, the rest of this passage starts to breathe in a whole new way. We're also going to untangle some things that are common misconceptions here. But let's work through it because it is really exciting and wonderful. And and I want you as believers, those of you here that know Christ, to just begin to revel in your new position in Him and those of you who are outside of Christ to say, I'm in bad shape, but there is a Redeemer, and I can be delivered. So, coming into the beginning of chapter 7, and we're going to take the first six verses, which is where he makes his first point. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, you and I would know that. Anybody would know that. If, if today you leave here and you speed, you can be arrested for speeding. Get a ticket. However, if you die before you leave here today, you will no longer be bound by the law that governs speed. Nobody's going to care because you can't speed. It's, the, the basic concept is simply this. Death alters relationships, does it? I mean, it really does. The law is only binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, here's his example. Take a married woman, for instance. She's bound by the law to her husband while he lives. She has to be faithful to him and he to her. But if, and it could have been flip-flopped, husband or wife. But if her husband dies, well, she's released from the law of marriage. She isn't bound by that anymore. Soon as her husband dies, she isn't married anymore. So the laws that govern marriage don't apply anymore. They just don't fit. So if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. But if her husband dies, well she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So his first point is simply this, that our death in Christ changes our relationship to the law, even though the law is not gone. So if you're filling in the blanks, that's your number one. Our death in Christ changes our relationship to the law, even though the law is not gone. Now watch what he does with this, because he changes the metaphor a little bit. He starts off with, well... A husband and wife, and the husband dies, the wife is free. Now he's going to change that just a little bit in verse 4. Now likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Now here it isn't the other person who's died, it's you. And you have died to the law, to the law, let's keep it in mind what he means by that, this kind of broader concept, sin and you will die. You have died to that law through, how? The body of Christ. And And that's happened for this purpose. So that you may belong to another. Who? To him who has been raised from the dead. That's Christ. In order that we may bear fruit for God. So here's it. You have, because you have believed in Christ and you were crucified with him... You judged yourself sinful and worthy of the crucifixion that took place on Calvary. And because you died in him, you are now dead to that system that says sin and you will die. Because you live under believe and you will live. So you're dead to that. And you have died to it so that in the process of being joined to Christ, what you do in your life actually gets rewarded instead of punished. Everything you did before you were saved deserved punishment. And now you're saved, but you still have mixed motives and you still sin. We're going to see that more in a few minutes. And yet, God says, I'm still going to reward you for your obedience, even though your obedience isn't pure. I have died to the law so that I might be joined to Christ so that in my living I might bear fruit for God. It's an extraordinary idea. Now, let's just follow it on. For while we were living in the flesh, that is, while we were enveloped in or governed by, while we were just a sinner, considered as a sinner, in Adam, by ourselves, while we were in the flesh, before we were saved, maybe another way to say that, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life, of the Spirit. The old written code was sin and you will die. I don't live under that anymore. How do I live? I live saying Christ has died and therefore I'm free to do righteousness and I don't have to worry about making sure every I is dotted or every T is crossed. It's no longer the system under which I live. Now, let's go back and just unpack just quickly. What does he mean then? For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's going to expand on that a little bit as we move through the passage. But the basic idea is simply this. God is God, and therefore as God, he has the right to rule. He sets up the law and says, this is what it means to obey me. And you and I have sin within us. And as soon as we see the law, sin wants to rule versus God ruling. That's the tension. That's always going to be there until Christ comes or until we die. So we're faced with that. It actually arouses in us. Some have tried to use different types of of analogies for that, kind of like we came in here, as you've seen people, um, uh, Judy Heberger and Sandy Breon and others have been busy trying to get us fixed here, and we're doing painting and remodeling and stuff like that. And I came in the other day, and there were stickers all over the stuff downstairs that said, wet paint, do not touch. You know what I wanted to do the minute I saw that. So do you. You want to touch it. I want to see if it's wet. How many of you walk on the do not walk on the grass signs, right? I mean, speed limit says 55. Can I go 56? Just just edge over. Sin in us rebels against any kind of law. And when God says, I rule, man, the sin rises up in us, and it actually stirs the sin in us to respond. So Paul says, well, that's that's a reality. We've got to live with that. We've got to understand that that dynamic is going on in us. But just as sin is not gone, but we're dead to its power over us, his first point here is, so the law is not gone, even though we're dead to its power to condemn us. Calvin put it this way. This release that we have, quote, is not from the righteousness which is taught in the law. Indeed, we're freed up to do that righteousness. But... It is from the rigid demands of the law and from the curse which follows from its demands. Sin and you will die. So, don't run, and I'm going to ask you to do this, because some, as they've tried to work through this, this whole thing about the Christian's relationship to the law is just such a hot potato that it really gets people bound up a lot. What I'm going to ask you to do is don't run from the law. Don't flee from it. Don't try to do away with it. Don't try to sweep it under the rug or, or just, you know, put it under the, I just don't know what to do with it, so I'm not going to wrestle with it. Instead, come to a full understanding of what your new relationship to it is. We're going to see that happens in in two different ways. Uh, I remember when I was 15, by the wisdom of the laws of the lawmakers in the state of New York, when I was 15, I was not permitted to drive a car. That was for y'all's safety, because they knew I could not handle it. On midnight, the stroke of midnight, closing out October 7th and moving into October 8th, I turned 16, and my relationship to the law that governed 15-year-olds ended, and now I related to the law in a new way, and the law that said I couldn't drive no longer has effect, and now the law that says I can drive comes into effect. Sad for y'all, because I don't drive well, but that's the way it works. Now, Paul's saying that very same thing. There has been a shift here. You were related to the law, sin and you will die one way. Now you're related to it a whole different way. It doesn't work that way anymore. So you don't live under the burden of it, and yet you know it's still there. It hasn't gone away. Matter of fact, Paul in other places is going is to talk about it. He's going to appeal to the law when he calls us to come up to certain standards of righteousness in our living. He doesn't say the law has gone. He appeals to it and says, see, this is what God would ask for. At the same time, he also says it, it can't condemn you. So don't live in relationship to it like It can. How many of us are living day to day with such burdens of guilt and heaviness that we're not meeting all the demands of the law? And he's saying, you missed it, then you're not living free in Christ. That that, that isn't where you live. A whole other thing has happened here. So he's freed us up so that we can bear fruit for God. And just how powerful this whole thing is is going to appear later on in in the passage. I'll make some ties here together with Genesis a little later on. I want to move on to the second point so that you, you just get the, again, I want to try and give you the overall sweep here of the passage. The second portion of the passage picks up in verse 7 and runs through verse 14. All right, having understood that we are now dead to the law, and, and because once when we were under the law, uh, we were it would condemn us, well then what shall we say? That the law is sin? I mean, was there a defect in the law that it would kill us? No, by no means. That's not the problem. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have really understood my own sinfulness. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, understand what he's he's saying there. He isn't saying, I wouldn't understand what coveting is. I wouldn't know how sinful coveting is unless I understood that the law said do not covet. That's what makes me understand how sinful the reality of it is. I wouldn't have known that. That's what the law does. It exposes and judges sin. It is a diagnostic tool. It is an x-ray. But it doesn't heal. It doesn't fix. It doesn't repair. It doesn't give life. And if you treat it like it does, you're going to be in trouble. All right, I will tie in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. God comes and he gives a command. Adam and Eve are in the garden. He places them in the garden. And then he says, Of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat. Not not just may, but you should freely eat. There's a command implied in that. I want you to go out and indulge yourself. Eat big. I like Genesis 2 is one of my favorite places. Eat big. So he, he gives that command to them. But he says there's one tree... You can't eat of it. Because if you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, it will surely die. And it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you will, the same, it's the same concept as the law. By virtue of the tree being there, and God having given up prohibition, don't eat of it, he has revealed to them what good and evil are. Good is obeying, evil is not obeying. They've got it. It's right there. The law has now come. They've understood the commandment. The problem is that that tree was never able to sustain life. So they weren't supposed to eat of it. They were supposed to know it was there, and and they were going to get the benefit of its diagnostic ability... To say this is what sin is and this is what good is, you you can tell the difference. But don't eat here because it will kill you. It's not meant to sustain life. I have other trees for that. Matter of fact, I have a tree of life, which is Christ himself. So at the very beginning, he sets out this antithesis between law and grace. And law will kill you, but grace will sustain you. Now the funny thing is, we went to the law. And said, well, we can live on that. We can eat that and we'll be okay. And he says, no, you won't. It'll kill you. And it did. And the whole human race in Adam died the moment we took that fruit. Because it was never meant to sustain life. The law was never meant to make you holy or make you righteous. It was only given so that you could understand the difference between sin and goodness. Holiness and and sin. So we weren't supposed to live there, but we that's what we did. So so Paul's still, we're still wrestling with that dynamic. You and I are still bearing the effects of that, even in this life. That's why his language goes there. So was there a defect in the law? Well, no, by no means. I mean, any more than yesterday, a couple of guys came in here, and they, they reattached the screen up there. And if they went to put those screws in the wood, but what they brought was a wrench... They'd say, that wrench isn't working. I can't get the screws in with the wrench. Must be the wrench is defective. No, you got the wrong tool for the job. Like the law can't make you holy. That's the wrong tool for the job. That's the Holy Spirit's work. So it is. the problem isn't with the law. The problem is how we're trying to use it. We're, we use it wrong. So... Is the law sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet. And if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Once I understood that covetousness was really sinful, it became forbidden fruit. And man, I got covetous for everything. That's the way it goes. That's how sin gets stimulated in the heart. And we've all experienced that. We we know exactly what that's like. Even more, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, because apart from the law, sin lies dead. There's no activity of it. And there was a time I was once alive, which alive is always an implication of union with God. Apart from the law. When was that? Back in the garden, in Adam. God creates Adam and Eve, and we were alive. Things were good. And then the commandment came Whew. don't eat of this tree. Don't covet what belongs to God alone. Don't covet my position. As a matter of fact, the Jews thought of the law of covetousness being the source of all sin, that everything grows out of covetousness. But the law, the commandment came, and then sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The deception? I can eat that tree and live. I can eat that tree and be God. I no, you can't. You can't eat of that tree and live. That's the lie. It's the lie organized religion functions on today. Just be good enough and God will accept you. It's the law many of us still internally run on. If I can just do enough good things, I know I'll have God's favor. That's a lie. That's the deception that makes you partake of the tree. But the tree says... Sin and you will die. We can't live there. It's not made for us to live there. So, does this reflect negatively on the law? No. No, it's no more a defect in the law than there's a defect in the law of gravity because if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, you slam into the earth at a high rate of speed. That's not the fault of... There's no defect in gravity. Gravity is just doing what it normally does. But you've you've related to it the wrong way. You've interacted with it improperly. And so you're going to end up smushed. So I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... So this is number 2, 7 through 14. We still have some relationship to the law, if you're filling in the blanks. Because we are still connected to Adam. And because sin still remains in us. Remember... The law is a diagnostic tool. What does it do? It exposes and judges sin. Do I have sin? Yes. Then the law still has impact on me. I still have a relationship to it, but I don't have the same relationship to it. It can expose my sin. It just can't condemn me anymore. It can't kill me. It can't put me out of God's presence. It can't end everything. The problem is elsewhere. Uh, the defect isn't in the law, but in the sin within us. So, did that which is good? Well, verse, verse 12, he then summarizes. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Don't don't denigrate it. Don't take it away. Don't call it something it isn't. Law's a good thing. But you've got to use it right. You use it wrong. Fire's a good thing, but if you use it wrong, You're in trouble. You've got to use it right. And the law is that way. So, verse 13. Did that then, which is good, bring death to me? Well, no. Again, it wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that, and God has done this, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure it opens to us the real sinfulness of sin so we don't treat it lightly we understand the gravity of it the power of it the the fullness of it because if we make light of sin bottom line we make light of salvation if we make much of sin we make much of salvation the worse our sin is the greater his grace is The more we try to skirt how sinful sin is, the less we find his grace wonderful. It's no big thing. So he says that's that's all happened so that we can really understand the impact, the power of sin. For we know, now again, if you don't put this in the context of Adam, you're not going to understand what he's talking about. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin now notice he uses present tense words i am of flesh sold under sin that's my present condition that's all of us why because we were in adam and in adam when adam fell we fell and we were all sold under this this position of sinfulness and so all of us still have sin in us and all of us still have to wrestle with it none of us are free from that reality but the law is a spiritual thing. It's not an outward keeping of the acts, it's an inward reality of God's own holiness. So I can't become spiritual by doing things. He has to make me spiritual so that good works flow from that. The law of coming first is always the cart before the horse. So I'm sold under sin. That's you and me. We've still got a part of that reality. Remember we talked about all the way through 5, 6, 7, and 8, you're going to deal with the what's changed and what hasn't? Here's part of what's changed and what hasn't. My relationship has changed, but I'm still constitutionally an, an Adamic creature, part of Adam's race, still sharing in sinfulness. That hasn't changed. God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. I'm still there. So that hasn't changed, but other parts have changed. It's understanding the dynamic that helps us. So that leads us to the third section, 15 through 20. And here, he's going to just help us understand, if you're filling in the blanks, our love-hate relationship with God's holiness is not utterly gone yet. Our love-hate relationship with God's holiness is not utterly gone yet. Watch how he unpacks this for you. It's... Amazing. So, verse, 13, or, uh, verse uh, 15. I do not understand my own actions. I don't have clarity on what I'm doing. And he says, this is, this is why. This is what you need to understand. For I do not do what I want, but the very th- I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, one thing he's not talking about. He's not talking about being a slave to a besetting sin. Why? Well, because Romans 6 told me I'm no longer in that condition. That's not true. I don't have to obey sin anymore. Here, what he's saying is something that's unavoidable. So it's a different dynamic that's going on here. In Romans 6, I was told I don't have to serve sin anymore. But over here, I'm being told, but I still have something to do with sin, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. And then he explains what that looks like. You've got to walk with me here, because this is probably going to change some of the way you understand this passage. The thing I hate, I do. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that within me, I still have a love-hate relationship with, with holiness. And what happens when I obey? The truth is there is still within me something that doesn't want to obey. And the very thing I hate, God's, or God's command to obey, is the thing I do. Why do I do that? Because I agree with the law that it's good, that it's right. I know I should. You do it all the time as a Christian. You read your Bible when you don't feel like it. You pray when you don't feel like it. Why? Why does that tension exist? Because there's still sin in you. Because there's that love-hate dynamic going on. I love it in one sense and I hate it in another. Some of some don't come to church because they don't feel like it. There's a struggle inwardly. Well, welcome to, welcome to life. That's what the Christian life's about. There's times when you're going to obey and the truth is you don't want to obey. Well, that's no big mystery, is it? It's, we hide it from each other. We don't want anybody else to know we obey when we don't want to obey. We want to pretend we're really holy and we always want to do holy things. That's a lie. It's not true. Truth is, even at some of, sometimes at our holiest moments, they're defiled with wicked thoughts. Sometimes when you're deepest in prayer, you're thinking about things you shouldn't think about. Sometimes when you've just been in the presence of God and worshiping, you know you're worrying and fretting the same as, as if you did as if God wasn't even on the throne. Because that's, that's this tension. This dynamic's there. One of the things that has to happen in the church today, I hope someday will happen for us all, is we'll just quit lying about that. Paul admits it. It's here. You're not holier than Paul. He's, he's struggling with this. The things... Sometimes God commands me to do stuff I don't want to do it. What would I do with that? Does that mean I'm not saved? Of course not. that's, That's not the point at all. I don't understand my actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. If I... If I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. That's the statement. So here's the law saying, do this, this is good, and I do it. But the truth is, I don't want to do it. I hate it. I've got a, I got a problem with it. I struggle with it. He's going to use the, the inverse of this in just a moment. Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it's good. So then, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, my very obedience is Sinful. Because it's, because it's done out of an impure motive. There's a mixture here. It's not wholehearted. God has no mixture, but I've got lots of it. And, and so even my obedience is sin. This is why for you, if you're not in Christ, everything you do, no matter how good it is, isn't worthy. It's why God rejects every one of your good works and says, No, I can't reward you for that. Because it's done still out of a sinful heart. And this then, for the Christian, is mind-boggling, because I stop and I say, I've still got a sinful heart and ways. I still don't want to do some of these things. I still rebel against God's rulership in my life. And he says, that's the extraordinary thing. Because you have shifted from law to grace, I reward you for it, even though you're, you're still obeying out of a mixture. That's stunning. That's grace. That's grace. You've been worried that your service for God is substandard because sometimes you want to and sometimes you don't. God receives your obedience and rewards it as though it were perfect and not mixed. And for the unbeliever, God looks at their works, no matter how good, and says they're unworthy because they're mixed. What's the difference? I've been shifted from law to grace. That's it. The mixture still remains. It's a, it's a strange place to be, isn't it? Frustrating at times. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. If I look at myself just in Adam, in the flesh, there's nothing good in me. That, that's all got My righteousness is all, as Luther would say, an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to me. It's not mine, but he puts it on my account. And that's why I'm secure in Christ. Now, I, I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Why not? Well, because I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This mixture is what makes that true. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, it's, er, yeah, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so I find it to be a law, like a law of gravity, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's true. If you're trying to purify every motive you have in your heart and mind, give it up. It's never going to happen. You can't do that. What do I do then? He tells you, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, so that even my best actions are still still sinful. No wonder then he cries out, wretched man that I am. How do I live with this tension? I thought you said being a Christian was going to be being in a better place. It is. It is. The redeemed still have this mixed obedience. And the good I want to do, full and acceptable obedience, I cannot do. Because I'm still sold under sin. And some of my motives are still mixed. And the bad I don't want to do, I don't want to serve God in a mixed way, I still do. Why? Because I'm sold under sin. And my motives are still mixed. And so the law still exposes and judges my sin, just like I'm lost. And yet... Because I'm under grace, it cannot condemn me. I'm in Christ. Now, the truth is, I just want the law to go away. I just want it to not bother me anymore. And God says, no, it's going to remain, and it's still going to prosecute its work, but you have to trust me. We don't want to trust him. We want to trust our own righteousness. And he won't let us. He won't let us. We're stuck having to trust him and never depend on our own righteousness for how we stand before him, but to receive his favor purely by grace as a gift. Oh, we struggle against that, don't we? We just don't want that. We want somehow to feel good about ourselves before God, that we're righteous before him, that that we're received because of how good we are. It's never going to be true. So in 21 through 24, if you're keeping your notes, this tension is part of the believer's suffering in this life. It's what you and I suffer. Might I say that for a Christian, I just saw a, an incredible video the other night on YouTube. Um, I don't know if any of you YouTube by YouTube. And, uh, but they've come out with this new material for bulletproof vests. It's completely flexible and feels exactly like normal cloth. But the second it is touched, the microsecond it's touched, by any kind of an impact, it turns completely rigid and prevents a knife or a bullet or anything from going through. Now it can only be used once, because then once it turns rigid, it's rigid and that's it, you gotta get a new one. But in the meantime, you can it's just like wearing normal clothes. The, the implications for battle obviously are amazing. So the fun thing on YouTube was watching a guy test it. Because nobody wants to test a bulletproof vest. Not if you're sane. I mean, I watched one where a guy tested a taser, too. That's stupid. Let somebody shoot you with a taser and get shocked and flop on the ground? No, no. I'm not volunteering for any of that. But this guy said, yeah, I'll volunteer to test the vest. So he's standing there, and they get a rifle out, and they shoot him. And he goes down like a load of bricks. Knocked the wind out of him. Knocked him out. Stood up. Had a broken rib. But the bullet didn't go through. Now the truth is, beloved... That's an awful lot of the way you and I experience our interactions with the law when we're Christians. What you need to know is, at times it's still going to bruise you and knock the wind out of you. You're going to read it, and it's going to expose sin, and it's going to hurt when you see it. But what you have to know is that you are in Christ, and the law cannot penetrate so as to kill you any more. Never again. Believe and you will live. Even though the law says sin and you will die. That's not where we live. Now, let's let him wrap this up with his fifth thought. It actually spills over into chapter 8. And then maybe next week we can go back and pull some of this apart. You really need to understand the relationship between what we're talking about here and what happened in the book of Esther. Uh, And I I, I do want to come back and help us. Really understand that. So, as he says, man, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death that I'm still experiencing this? Well, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I know what's right, and I continue to pursue that. But the truth is, because my motives are mixed with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I should be condemned, but I'm not. Why? Well, 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why. (laughs) Because condemnation isn't a part of what belongs to us. If you're keeping notes under number 5, verses 25 through 8.4, but there is no condemnation. Because we are in Christ. Now let me give you three things in these three verses and we'll close. Why not? Why is there no condemnation for those who are in Christ? First, in verse 2, because in Christ we serve under a new law. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because I'm under the law of believe and you will live and not under the law of sin and you will die, There's no condemnation, even though my obedience is mixed. Secondly, there's no condemnation because in verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Because in Christ, the penalty is paid. That's why you can't be condemned. Because your penalty has been paid. If you're in Christ, your sin has been dealt with. It's been paid for. The debt is canceled. It can't condemn you anymore. And thirdly, in verse 4, there is no condemnation because in Christ all righteousness is fulfilled. Look at the verse. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but how? According to the Spirit. Trusting Christ as being the hope of glory within us by His Spirit. The foretaste of heaven. The earnest of our inheritance. The proof that we are His. It's not because of our goodness. never will be. You and I are going to struggle with those mixed motives. We're still going to feel the hard impact of sin when, when the law exposes it and drives it home to us. But we will stand up with the wind knocked out of us and say, but it can't kill me. I belong to Christ. All it can do is expose. All it can do is judge. But it cannot condemn. I'm free in Him. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, that's not true for you. Paul was clear. No matter how good your works are, because they are tainted with sin, you will be judged for them. And that's why the law hasn't gone away. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew. We had them read for us, that not one jot or tittle of the law will will go. Why? Because men still have to be judged. That's why the law doesn't disappear. It has to do a final work of judgment on all men. And so it it remains with us. It's a constant. But as a Christian, your relationship to it is completely altered. You believe Christ and receive him as your righteousness, as him dying for your sins. And he says, you live, and you will never be condemned again. Never. You're free. Now live like free people. See, that's the joy. Some would say, well, if you tell people they aren't condemned, they're going to live like the worst people on the planet. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because the Spirit of Christ is in you and you you get this whole new set of desires that start yearning after Him in a whole new way. It won't happen. What He does do is remove the specter of condemnation so that you're free to serve Him, not under the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. Just walk free. That's you and me if you're in Christ today. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this passage. I know we covered an enormous amount of territory in a short period of time. I'm certain that there are lots of questions here that still need to be unfolded and and answered. But what is very clear from the whole picture is this, that you have, by uniting us to Christ in faith, for all who believe have removed us from the place where the law can condemn us ever again and have set us in a place of freedom and joy and victory where we can walk with confidence that you will receive us because you have received Christ. Father, what a glorious place to live. And thank you for exposing the truth of this tension because we're afraid to even admit to other people it's there, but it is. And that's not a surprise to you. You've written about it in clear terms. And for those here who don't know you in this capacity, they came in here today doing their religious duty, thinking if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I hear the sermon, if I do the stuff, those are the things that are going to make me acceptable to you. Father, open their eyes to the fact they're still living under the law. They're trying to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it can only kill. But grace is the tree freely given. It's Christ. And you bid all to come and partake. And if they will drop every pretense of establishing their own righteousness today and admit their rebellion against you and flee to you for mercy, you will give it to them. You will make them new creatures. You will set them on a path and they too will know that there's no condemnation because they're in Christ Jesus. I pray that that will be the truth today for each of us, that it will be burned into our hearts and minds and we'll walk in the freedom, the joy, the glory of it as we leave here today, not condemned, but convinced of the finished work of Christ and the fullness of the benefit to all those who believe. Bless your people in these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.